attention to the passage that I read, and we want to focus, as I said, on verses 9 to 11. So Acts chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, where once again we read, When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men, obviously two angels, stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Well, there are two great events that are set before us in our text. The ascension of Christ and the return of Christ. And uh, these two are bookends, in a sense, and uh, in between the bookends is the age in which we live. Now, we, we don't observe Ascension Day as some Christian traditions do, um, and we don't reflect on the return of Christ as Christians ought to do. Ascension Day is usually celebrated on a Thursday, 40 days after Easter, and in 2024, May the 9th uh, is designated as Ascension Day. We don't celebrate Ascension Day, but we should at least understand why it's important. And we want to try and think about that this morning and why the Christian church uh, should be thankful for the ascension. There's no day that's dedicated to observing the return of Christ. But of course, the return of Christ is a day that will change everything. And we would do well to think about the return of Christ. I'm not saying we never think about it, but if you're like me, you probably don't think about it as much as you ought. We want to think about these things this morning. We've considered the first advent at some length. Considered the first advent and our Lord's entrance into the world. And what we're going to think about this morning is His departure from the world and His second advent. We're going to think about the significance of the ascension and the glory of the return. So let's think about the significance of the ascension. We see an account of it in verses 9 to 11. And uh, it's clear what happens. The Lord Jesus leads the disciples out to Bethany on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. And there, 40 days after his resurrection... And ten days before Pentecost, about which we read in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapters 1 and 2, he ascends into heaven. What an extraordinary scene that was. And of what enormous significance it is for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we know that this is an event of great significance? 
Well, we know it's of great significance because that's what the Lord Jesus tells us. If you go over to John chapter 16, we won't read the whole section, but in John 16, verses 5 down to 15, you'll see there that the Lord Jesus tells us that it's very important that He go away. Notice verse 5, But now I am going to Him who sent me, and none of you asks, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So when we think about the significance of the ascension, we realize that it is of enormous significance for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in order to try and understand that significance, we can try and hang our thoughts on three hooks. I'm going to give you three words. They can kind of be like three hooks, and we can hang our thoughts on those and as we think about those three areas, it'll help us understand why the ascension is so important, not just for the church in general, but for you and for me. The words are better, praise, and confidence. So let's think about the word better for a minute. The Lord Jesus is saying in John 16, he's saying that it is better for you it is to your advantage that I go away. And that seems counterintuitive. How can it possibly be better for the Lord Jesus to be away from us? How can it not be better for Him to be with us? How can His departure be a positive thing? But that's what the Lord Jesus tells us. And the reason is very simple. It's better for one simple reason. And that is that the Spirit will be given. The Spirit of God will be given. Back in John 16, verse 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. In John 14 and verse 16, uh, verse 6, rather, uh, uh, verse 16, the Lord Jesus says, I'm going to send you another helper. Now that's of tremendous significance because the word another could mean either another of a different kind or another of the same kind. There are two Greek words and one means another of a different kind. And the other Greek word means another of the same kind. And Jesus uses that word, that second word. And he says, I'm going to send you another helper. You see, he's our helper, is the Lord Jesus. I'm going to send you, he says, another helper. I'm going away, but I'm going to send you another helper just like me. Another helper as extraordinary as me. Another helper with the same attributes as I have, with the same love I have for you, with the same power I demonstrate on your behalf, I'm going to send you another helper, and he's going to be just like me. 
No wonder this is uh, for our advantage. No wonder this is better for us. He's going to be the spirit of promise. This another helper that the Lord Jesus sends. He's the spirit of promise. That is, God has promised all along, down through the centuries and across the ages, He has promised that He's going to send the Spirit. He's going to pour out His Spirit. In Joel 2, 28 and 29, it says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh. I will pour out My Spirit in those days. God has all along promised that He's going to do this. He's going to send His Spirit. He's going to pour out His Spirit. Yes, He will send the Messiah, and the Messiah will do a work of salvation. And part of the blessing of salvation is that He will pour out His Spirit. He will pour out His Spirit in all flesh. He will pour out His Spirit in those days. We read in Ezekiel 36, 27, I will put My Spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes. You go over to Acts chapter 2, and you see that's exactly what happens there. It's in response to and in fulfillment of the promises of God. What you read about in Acts 2, when the Spirit is sent out, He's the Spirit of promise. He's the Spirit whom God said He would pour out. And now, in the fullness of time, the Savior having come and worked and been raised from the dead and ascended into glory, the Spirit comes. He's the Spirit of promise. And He's also the Spirit of power. The Spirit of God is the Spirit of power. He's going to empower the church to fulfill its mission. He's going to empower the church to accomplish its great commission. And this is absolutely vital. Because the church is on a, a mission impossible. We are tasked with doing something we cannot do. In fact, Jesus tells us, uh, you can't do this. You know, if they did a feasibility study of the idea of a church. Any sane person would say, well, now you really shouldn't do that. Because what we are tasked with is going into a cemetery and saying to people, like, I think you should stand up. Like, I'd like you to live. Right? Go to Ezekiel 37, the valley of dry bones. He's told, is Ezekiel, speak to the bones, Ezekiel. Ezekiel, do you think they can live? He says, well, you know, Lord, I don't think so. But they must, because you're telling me, but I don't understand all of this. It's an impossible task. We're tasked with going and telling people who have no love for Christ that they're to turn from the sin they love To the Savior, they don't. We're to talk to dead sinners and tell them to rise up. We're to talk to sinners who love their sin and tell them to turn from it. You see, the Spirit is the one single factor that makes our work possible. 
It has nothing to do with how fervent we are, how prepared we are, how many books we've read, how passionate we are, how hard we work as a church. It's got nothing to do with that. The only way what we do is going to work is by the power of the Spirit. Everything we try to do as a church is impossible. You're trying to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You want to see them one to Christ. We want to see our children and our grandchildren come to Christ. It's impossible. We want to reach out into the community. We, we had cards distributed, invitations distributed, and some people went out and actually put them in the mailboxes of certain people, hoping that these dead sinners will say, hmm, I think I'm going to go to church today. That doesn't work. We're trying to, you know, we've had a couple of youth events this past year, uh, invited youth from different churches, and we put on a fun day for them. You know all about that. And we hope to do that again in the coming year. It's impossible, you see. It will not work. But the fact of the matter is, the Spirit of God has been poured out upon the church. He indwells each and every one of you who is a Christian. And so as you go about seeking to do these impossible things... The Spirit of God works. He takes our feeble words, He takes our weak efforts, and He uses them to accomplish things that are absolutely impossible when it comes to men. And that's why the Lord Jesus says, you're better off for me to go and send the Spirit because then you'll be equipped so that your mission impossible becomes possible because all things are possible with God. John 1.50, the Lord Jesus says, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? But you will see greater things than these. And that's what the Spirit of God will bring about. There are greater things that are going to be done as the church begins to spread than these disciples saw in our Lord's ministry. The church is going to do greater things than Jesus did. How can that be? Well, it's as the Spirit uses the church and empowers their ministry for the saving of multitudes of souls. That's the, the greater things that Jesus is talking about. So what is prophesied in Daniel chapter 2. Remember Daniel talks about a stone that is not cut out with hands. And that stone then begins to grow. And it grows and grows and grows. It crushes everything before it. All other empires are destroyed and crushed before it. And it fills the earth. Well, that's what will be accomplished through the ministry of the church by the empowering of the Spirit. You will receive power when the Spirit of God is sent upon you. And that's why Jesus says it's better. Like, it's better if I go. You will have power because the Spirit will be upon you. That's why the ascension is so significant. That's why we're so thankful that Jesus went into the glory. So he and the Father sent the Spirit as promised 
so that we might be empowered for our ministry, which we're privileged to have. And that's why this church is useful. Not because we're great, not because we're you know, largely sweet, uh, but simply because we're empowered by God. So that's one word. The second word is praise. Why are we thankful for the ascension? Well, because there are praiseworthy things that it entailed. We respond to the ascension with praise because Jesus has now returned to his glory. Well, we love that. The Lord Jesus has returned to his glory. We love him. And Jesus says, if you love me, you'll be happy that I'm going to my Father. You see, his period of humiliation is over. And if you love the Lord Jesus Christ, like you're thankful for that. We marvel at what we read in the Gospels about how he humbled himself. We marvel at what we read in Philippians chapter 2 about how he humbled himself. But we love him, and so we're thankful to see that he returns to his glory. And he's no longer humiliated. And he no longer veils his glory, but he's returned to the glory and the love that he shared with the Father. And so we praise God for that. And then we praise God also because Jesus has not only returned to his glory, but he's returned to his throne. There was a time when the Son of Man had no place to lay his head. Imagine that. You know, we, we go on a trip and we think, you know, we, we don't just have a motel or a hotel to stay at. Like, we want, we want ones that are really nice. You know, it's got a breakfast with a two, because, you know, and it's got, like, nice beds. And he didn't have a place to lay his head. And he walked everywhere. But now he's back on his throne. He's back on his throne. He, he rose and he ascended and he sat down at the right hand of majesty. And he's seated upon his throne now. Hebrews 1 says, When he had purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Acts 2.36 says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And then Acts 2.33, This Jesus God raised up. He's been exalted to the right hand of God. So we praise God for that. And then the third word is confidence. How do, we, how do we live our lives as Christians? You know, in Hebrews it talks about people whose, oh, their knees are weak, you know, they just 
fumble along. Their, their arms are hanging down. Shoulders are stooped. And sometimes we as Christians, that's the picture we present, you know. Life's been hard, and so we just... I'm a child of the king. Yeah. But you see, the fact of the matter is, this is the king we serve. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 25, For he must reign till he has put all his enemies under his feet. That's our king. He's not fighting a losing battle. He's not even in some pitched battle where you say, Boy, he's given a good account of himself, but I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. It's not like 50-50. It's guaranteed that he's the victor. It's guaranteed that he crushes his enemies. He will reign until all his enemies are under his feet. And so when we look at Christian history we find that this is exactly the kind of thing that happens. You know, there's a wonderful hymn written by Isaac Watts called Jesus Shall Reign. Well, just think about that phrase. Earlier this month, I, I, I read somebody who said, think about certain phrases from hymns and, and let them percolate in your mind and you'll find them to be of real benefit. And I've been trying to do that. And I found them to be of real benefit. Think about this phrase, Jesus shall reign. Who's going to reign? The Lord Jesus. He's going to reign? Yes, he's going to reign. Is it for sure? Yes, Jesus shall reign. And he's going to reign over who? Over everybody. There's no question about it. And we look around us and we think, oh, doesn't look like it, does it? But then look at the church and look at how it's grown. Look at where it started in Acts chapter 1. And look at the fact that now all over the world there are people who call on the name of Jesus. There are people who sing the same hymns we sing all over the globe. People who look nothing like us. But we're all part of the family of God, all part of the people of Christ, because He has sent His word forth. He has marshaled the forces of light. He has sent His people to the tongues and tribes all over the world. And they preached the unsearchable riches of Christ as we seek to do in our country and our community. And he's saving people and they're coming in droves to Christ. See, he will reign. And Jesus said the gates of hell cannot stop it. He said the gates of hell cannot prevent the gates of hell cannot withstand the inroads that the church makes because of the power of the Spirit of God. And we know that Jesus said, I will build my church. So, you know, we're at a church here. How many people do we have today? Not a lot of people. I went to a hockey game 
last week. Fabulous hockey game, but we won't get into all the details about that. And there were thousands of people screaming their lungs out, of which I was one, I have to admit. And you think, well, boy, the church is small, isn't it? Ah, but one day, there's going to be around the throne of Christ a multitude. Ah, oh, the Bible says nobody can number it. You won't even be able to count how many Christians there are worshiping the Lamb. So, yeah, sometimes, you know, we get discouraged. You know, we, we do our best, we do our work, and we think, oh, not making a lot of progress, are we? But it's okay. We, Jesus shall reign. Jesus will build his church. The kingdom will come. And one day, we read it in Philippians 2, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we're confident. It's guaranteed. We've read the last chapter. We know how it ends. We know that we are the victors. We know that Christ, oh, he will reign. So the ascension is very important, you know. And it's important because it means that we are better off. It's important because we well, the Lord Jesus has returned to his glory and to his throne, and consequently, we can go about our God-given tasks in this world with supreme confidence. Not in ourselves, God forbid, because we can do nothing apart from Christ, but supreme confidence in the triune God. Well, that's the ascension and the significance of it. But now, the glory of the return. The glory of the return. You see, the return of Christ is what really defines us. At least the Bible says that's what ought to define us. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 9 and 10. We are people then, as Christians, who are all about the return of Christ. Not just the first coming, but the second coming as well. 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 9 and 10. They themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned from God, to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Who are they? Well, they're the Christians, you see, what have they done? They've turned from sin to God. And what else? Well, they wait for Jesus. That's who they are. That's a definition. That's a description of who they are. They are those whose citizenship is in heaven. They're not citizens of this world. They're just a passing through, as the old hymn says. They are citizens of a different country. It's not that they turn their back on this world and don't care about the people in this world, but their citizenship, where they really belong, where their hearts are fixed and their affections are focused. That's heaven. We are those who are waiting for Christ. That's our orientation. We're always thinking about Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father. We're always looking 
to the horizon. We're always scanning the horizon. We're always looking for the sign of his coming. Because we're interested and we're passionate about that. I wonder if it's really true of you or of me. Are we really, are we really looking? Are we really eager? Well, let's think about the return and maybe that'll stir it up. Let's think first of all about the certainty of the return. There are people who scoff. There are people who say, well... Where, where is his coming? How many years has it been now? Is he really coming? You, you fools. But you see, the Bible is adamant. The Lord Jesus was adamant. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. I will be coming again. 1 Thessalonians 4, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Revelation 1.7, Jesus says, uh, the scripture says, behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him. Matthew 24.44, therefore you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Revelation 22.12, Behold, I am coming soon and I'm bringing my rewards with me. That's Jesus speaking and he says, I am coming. There's no question about it. There's no debate. This is categorical. So you be expecting that. You be on the lookout. The Lord Jesus is going to come back again. And that's why the New Testament, yeah, they would sometimes say Maranatha. You know how Paul ends 1 Corinthians? And he writes, Maranatha which means, oh, Lord, come. I don't know if any emails have ever been, been ended with Maranatha. Maybe you should do that this year. Maybe one day this year one of us will send an email and we'll finish it off with Maranatha. And what we'll mean is, oh, Lord, come. Oh, Lord, come in your glory. Oh, Lord, come and finally deliver your people. Lord, come and bring in the kingdom. Lord, come and, and banish sin. Lord, come and see to it that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you're Lord. Or the certainty of his coming. Think also about the glory of his coming. He comes, well, we know about the first coming, don't we? We know about the, oh, the humiliation. We know about the condescension. Condescension means when someone is great and, and gets down on his knees and, and humbles himself. And there's no condescension like the condescension of Christ. But when he comes again, see, they say here, this Jesus is going to come back. This Jesus. Yes, it's this Jesus of Nazareth, to be sure. But it's more than that. It's this Jesus who has conquered death. 
of this Jesus who's been raised from the dead. This Jesus who is on a cloud ascending into the glory. This Jesus is coming back. This Jesus who is about to sit down at the right hand of the majesty. That Jesus is coming back again. This Jesus who is going to be reigning until all his enemies are overcome. That Jesus is on his way back. And he'll come on the clouds and with great glory. Clouds are always attached to glory. It always signifies glory. There are clouds on Mount Sinai. There's a cloud on the Mount of Transfiguration. There's a cloud of glory. And Jesus, when he comes back, comes back on clouds and with great glory. Let me show you what it's like. Let me read to you about what you're going to see. And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn. Sorry, wrong chapter. Chapter 19 of Revelation. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems, and he is a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's what you're going to see. He's going to be like this. The sight of him will have this impact upon you. John writes, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters, in his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. I said, think about the certainty of his return, and think about the glory of his return. That's what you're going to see. That's what you're confronted with. The risen, ascended, reigning, glorified, majestic King Jesus. Now the nature of his return, think about the nature of his return, 
This same Jesus. This Jesus. It's going to be personal, this return. Think about the nature of it. It'll be personal. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, The Lord Himself, not another, not an emissary, not an angel, not a representative. I used to go to a doctor at some clinic and, and I never saw the doctor. It was years. Like I never, I didn't know if my doctor was a male or female. Because I never saw the doctor. I saw someone else. I wanted to see my doctor. But I never saw my doctor. We're not going to have angels come back for us. He will come back for us. We'll see him. John says, we'll see him as he is. This is a personal return. It'll be visible. Revelation 1.7 Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Maybe you're not a Christian. You say, well, I don't care. Well, you will care on that day because you'll see him with your own eyes. Then it'll matter. I don't believe it. (laughs) You'll see him with your own eyes and then you'll believe it. You'll see it. It'll be visible. Luke 17, For as the lightning flashes out of one part under heaven and shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in that day. Everyone will see. You will see with your own eyes. No one will have to come to you and say, Listen, they won't have to let you know. No one's going to text you and say, you missed it. Right? You won't miss that appointment. You will be there, and with your own eyes you will behold. You won't be able to say, no, no, it didn't happen, because you'll know. Job said, this I know, that in my flesh... I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold, and not another. You'll be there, and you'll see. And it'll be purposeful, this return. It's going to be purposeful. It'll be purposeful. Why is he coming back? Well, he's coming back to take us home. That's what, it, that's what he said. He says, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. Friends, he's coming to take you home. This is a difficult world. This is a cold world. It's a harsh world. And I think, you know, when I was young, I was brimming with enthusiasm as a Christian. And um, the older I get, the more I see this as a veil of tears. This is not a nice place. 
And, uh, but he's coming to take us home. And then what Jesus prayed for will be answered. Do you remember in John 17, 24, the Lord Jesus prays to the Father. Can you imagine? He prays to the Father. He says he wants them, that's us, to be with me where I am. He prays to the Father that that might take place, that all his people might be gathered and be with him where he is. That's extraordinary. It's one thing for us to pray that, that we might be gathered so that we might be with him where he is. But for him to pray that is absolutely astounding. But he does, and on that day when he returns, that will be fulfilled because he will come and he will take us home to be with him where he is. And as Paul says, then we shall always be with the Lord. That will never end. I, you know, I love Christmas. And it's fabulous, and then it's over. And I think, huh, just like that. Just like that. And everything in this world is like that. The greatest joys are always tinged with, with suffering and sorrow. Always. And they always end. And then we're with the Lord. And it never ends. So yes, he's come for that purpose. He's come to take us home, and he's come to judge. He's come to judge. There's a sword coming out of his mouth. There's a strong right hand that threatens. You read in John 5, God is going to judge the world through the one whom he has designated. And Jesus will judge. You will stand, if you're not a Christian, you'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And if you're not a Christian, you will go to hell. There's just no two ways about it. I can't sugarcoat this much as I'd like to, but it's the simple, honest gospel truth that if you're not a Christian, You'll be judged forever and forever and forever, world without end. That's, that's the reality. You'll suffer forever. And that's why we plead with you to turn to Christ, because the returning Christ is the only one who can save you from the wrath of God which the returning Christ will bring. Jesus is the one who saves from the wrath to come. When you believe in him, you're safe. I, you know, I don't know what's wrong with me. I think there's probably all kinds of stuff going on that just, but by the end of the day, I'm dead. Not worried at all. At all. Because you know, I die, I wake up in glory. When you're a Christian, boy, you're safe. Nothing to fear. What did Gord say earlier? Quoting Paul, there's no condemnation. Zinzendorf said, with joy shall I lift up my head on that day. 
Nothing to fear. Well, that's the return. Oh, dear. They always say in the glory, there's no time to worry about. Oh, boy. I'll just give you the headings of the four implications. All these things being true, we pursue holiness. Those who have this hope, they pursue holiness. You read 1 John 3.3. 3. Secondly, we, we seek the lost. If you believe in hell, you need to seek the lost. Carrie was gripped by the fact that there were millions of people all over the world who were going to hell daily. So I, need, I need to get out there. I need to. We seek the lost. Thirdly, we serve the Lord. You serve the Lord. If you, if you fix your eyes on things above and you look on the horizon all the time for the return of Christ, it means you need to get busy here. Those who are most focused on the world to come are most useful in the world around us. So we serve the Lord. We seek the lost. We pursue holiness. And we eagerly wait. We are those who love the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that you? Are you somebody who loves? You're not, you know, I'm okay with it. You're not nonchalant. You're not, okay, I'm, I accept that. That's one of our articles of faith, so I'm good with it. No, no, you, you love the appearing. We understand that love the appearing. Do you, do you have a... You remember the, the Christmas gatherings? Maybe they were family members. You couldn't wait to see them. You couldn't wait for them to arrive. You're looking out the window. Are they, are they here? Are you like that? Is he, is he here? Is he coming? Do I hear the sound? We love the appearing of our Savior. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, how we, how we love the appearing of the Son. We're looking forward to it so much. We can't wait to see Him. And uh, so we pray, Maranatha, we pray, even so come Lord Jesus. In the meantime, use us to save souls. We want to see our loved ones saved. We want to see them delivered and, and rescued. We want to be useful for that purpose. So use us as a church. Use us as individuals and, and bring glory to yourself by saving many souls. And then make us those, our Father, who not only know about the return of Christ, but we love it and look forward to it. Grant this for Jesus' sake. Amen.